0: Well, we're in a series called Christianity Illustrated in which we're looking at a few parables of Jesus. And we're going to look at a parable that's kind of tucked away in Luke chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can start turning there. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, and this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, not Lazarus that gets raised from the dead in John chapter 11. This is a Lazarus that didn't exist. Jesus just kind of names this guy Lazarus, and we'll talk about that at the end. And so let's kind of read through the parable. We're going to see what's going on. We'll look at the characters that are involved. We'll tease out a few lessons, and then we'll be done. All right, here we go. Lessons from Lazarus beginning in Luke 16, 19. Between you and us, as a great chasm, it has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And that's kind of a strange parable. But we're going to start first by looking at the characters. There's a description of the characters that's going to kind of help us understand what's going on. Two main characters in the story The first character is mentioned as the rich man. And we get this little bit of a description of the rich man. It says in the verse, he was not just rich, but he was dressed in purple, fine linen, lived in luxury every day. And he also lived in a gated community, in a gated house, because they'd put Lazarus at the gate, outside the gate every day, which meant the rich man lived inside. Well, what did that mean? Well, back in Jesus' day, that would have been the epitome and the height of extravagance and affluence. To live in a gated community meant you could keep all the riffraff and all the people that you don't want inside, outside. This guy lived in a gated property, in a gated house, in a gated community. It also says he was dressed in purple. That doesn't mean that was his favorite color. It was very expensive to dye fabric purple in the ancient world, which meant only the really rich people could afford purple. So this guy dressed in purple. That's a sign of his wealth. It's a sign of his importance. Royalty wore purple. The rich and connected wore purple. This guy wore purple. Now you see the next two words? Fine linen. I'm not sure why they translated that that way. Fine linen means this guy had really expensive underwear. right? Fine linen speaks of underwear. I went online this week and just typed in a, Most expensive underwear. Men's most expensive underwear. I didn't need to go the other one. Men's most expensive underwear. Do you know, men, you can buy a pair of briefs for over $350. I'll tell you what, if I'm wearing them, I'm wearing them on the outside, not on the inside. I want to show off to everybody. (laughs) This guy had expensive underwear, right? I mean, they're made of silk. They have probably gold threading in them. He has really expensive underwear. He lived in luxury. That doesn't mean, you know, that that doesn't mean he lived in a posh kind of way. Even though he did living in luxury meant he feasted all the time. That word luxury means fine food. This guy feasted every day. Think of the most extravagant feast you've had in the last year. This guy ate like that every day. So his food, his underwear, his clothing, his house, his community, everything smacked of over-the-top opulence and affluence. Well, the second character is the poor guy. And in a world where there were lots of beggars, this guy was the extreme when it came to poverty. It says he was carried and placed at the man's gate every day. That either meant he was crippled and couldn't get there or he was so sick He couldn't even make his way to the place where he was going to beg. He needed friends to take him and put him at the gate. It also says he's covered with sores. That's kind of gross, right? I mean, the guy couldn't afford medical insurance or medical treatment. If you have a sore, we hope it's at least bandaged, right? Because I don't want to be grossed out when I see it. Well, this guy had really gross, oozing sores. They weren't even bandaged, and the dogs would come and lick them. That's not cute. That's disgusting. Dogs back then were not pets, and they weren't these little puffy, prissy things that masquerade as pets today. These were like guard dogs. Think about it. The guard dogs are outside the gate where the guy was laid, and he longs to eat what the guard dogs are eating. He, this guy has nothing. He is in the pits of the pit. He's a mess. We got the rich guy, and we got Lazarus. Now, you've got to understand, back in Jesus' day, similar to our day, most people lived with this kind of little motto. If you live a good life, you get the good life. And if you have the good life, that must be evidence that you lived a good life. And so don't we think like that? We think, well, you know what? If I really live a good life, if I do what God wants me to do, he'll bless me and give me, give me lots of stuff. If I don't have lots of stuff, somehow I must have screwed up. Well, that was the thinking in Jesus' day. Therefore, the conclusion of this parable is absolutely shocking. As is often the case in the parables, Jesus reverses what normally everybody thought would have happened. So here's the contrast. The rich guy who everybody thought was experiencing God's blessing because he had a good life, he must have lived a good life, He goes to hell. And Lazarus, the guy who had a bad life, therefore he must have lived a bad life, he goes to Abraham's side. The old version says Abraham's bosom. Uh, What the heck is going on there? A great reversal. How in the world did that happen? Well, we're not told explicitly in the parable how that all happened, but Let's think a little bit about the discussion and the description of what happens between the two. First of all, we have the great reversal. The rich guy lived in affluence, opulence, and ease here. He dies and experiences torment. Lazarus lived a life of pain and suffering. He's at Abraham's side. Notice that Lazarus being at Abraham's side is a reference to feasting. Because unlike in our day, when especially me, I don't want people touching. I don't want their heads near me when I'm eating, right? And I don't want my head near them. They may drop something on my head, and it's going to be gross later. Um, So we're far away when we eat. We sit, and we keep our distance. Back in Jesus' day, for a feast... You would recline at a table. You wouldn't sit at a chair. You'd recline, and your head would be near the chest of the person next to you, and you kind of went around the circle. So when it says Lazarus died and he's at Abraham's side, that's a reference to feasting. So the suffering beggar, who had nothing to eat and longed to eat the dog food outside the gate, he is now feasting with Abraham. And the rich guy that had opulence and affluence and extravagance every single day, he wants Lazarus just to come and put a drop of water on his tongue. Wow, how things change! Well, what's changed? Well, obviously the whole situation, the context, has been reversed. But there are a couple of things that um, that don't change. The rich guy's heart doesn't change, does it? In fact. Did you notice in the parable, he can't bring himself to name Lazarus. He sees Lazarus, he sees Abraham, and and you you can't get your end time theology about how heaven and hell works from this story, it's just a parable. Um, But he looks, he can't bring himself to say anything to Lazarus, he can't even mouth his name, so he speaks to Abraham, he won't speak to Lazarus. He's not repenting, he's not apologizing, he's not sorry for how he lived. In fact, he's still giving commands. Hey, Abraham, by the way, send Lazarus down here to get me a drink. By the way, send Lazarus back to my hometown to tell my brothers. The guy is still giving commands. He's still ordering Abraham to tell Lazarus what to do. Some things didn't change. The guy's heart didn't change. His attitudes didn't change. But boy, did his circumstances change. That actually brings up something that... uh, that we need to mention periodically. And that is that, you know, sometimes people begin to think that uh, when people die, if they're experiencing separation from God, that there's a lot of regret and they repent, and if there was a second chance, they would take it. There's absolutely no biblical evidence, none for that at all. There's no biblical evidence anywhere that people separated from God in eternity repent come to their senses, want to come back to God. In fact, all of the evidence is on the other side. They get further and further from God. They get harder in their attitudes. Their hearts get more calloused in their separation. They're not willing to be together. They're blaming other people. They're still giving commands. They're not making any difference on the inside. Well, let's tease out a couple of lessons. Um, some instruction. Some instruction. Here's the first instruction. I'm going to try to make them short. Affluence often breeds excess and insensitivity. Affluence often breeds excess and insensitivity. Now, hear me out. There is absolutely nothing wrong with stuff. Nothing wrong with stuff. You can have all the stuff that you want, and God is the source of every good and perfect gift. But here's what often happens, right? And I know we've all experienced every one of us in this room has experienced it. You get a little bit of stuff, and rather than be continually thanking God for the good gift, pretty soon the stuff that you've received and you knew it was a gift all of a sudden becomes an expectation, an expectation that you deserve. And the focus is all on you. You worked hard, you deserve it. And since the focus is all on us, we become blind to the needs around us. Why do we sometimes show videos? Why do we take young people and middle-aged people and older people on mission projects during the summer? Because we need to have our eyes opened by the reality of the needs of other people, but often our affluence blinds us to those needs because we're consumed with our stuff. There's nothing wrong with stuff. You can have all the stuff you want, but once your stuff has you, now you've got a problem. Remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus? He's rich, right? He's got lots and lots of stuff. The problem is not that he has stuff. The problem is his stuff has him. And Jesus says, get rid of your stuff and follow me. He says, no, I'd rather have my stuff than have you. That's the problem. Affluence. Often breeds excess. Before you know it, you're expecting all this stuff and all the little bells and whistles. You need all of that and you need more and more and more. As long as the focus is on your wants, that well never runs dry, does it? You just want and want and want and you become insensitive to the people around you. Lesson two, accountability is coming and should influence them. Have you noticed that theme in a number of the parables? Accountability is coming. Payday is coming. So here's the most... uh, flattened out statement you can find um, in this parable. They both died. Do you notice that? They both died. The one guy died in suffering and torment. The other guy, guy died in $400 underwear, but they both died. It doesn't matter if you have lots and lots of stuff. It doesn't matter if you have nothing. We all die. The great equalizer, death. But death is not the end. Payday accountability follows and for some people there will be a reversal. How's it going to happen? Accountability is real and it's coming. You know, one of the things that people often think when they read the Bible, oh, you know, all the Old Testament prophets and some New Testament passages, they talk about the future. And we think of prophets only looking at future events and how it's going to work. And then Christians take it as their responsibility to draw these cute little maps about what's going to happen. And we begin to think we're better than somebody else because we figured out the details. I'll let you know a little secret. The Bible never tells us what will happen so that we know more than other people and become pompous and proud. The Bible tells us what will happen in very broad terms so that we change our living today. Know the future and change today. The end should change the present. And just like this parable, the end, final accountability, should influence how we live today. Third lesson. We have all that's necessary to reach and rescue people. Have you ever had the, uh, the thought, uh, the if only thought? If only. Lord, if only you would show up. The way you showed up in some of those Bible passages, my neighbors would believe in Jesus. If only Taylor Swift would start following Jesus, our world would be different. If only all these movie stars, if only athletes had a bigger platform, everybody. That's not true. That's not true. In fact, uh, the other Lazarus story, remember that one from John 11? Interesting, same name. The other Lazarus story. Jesus raises that guy from the dead, he had been dead for four days his body stunk when the stone got rolled away there was a nasty odor of death Jesus raised him from the dead and he walked out alive did everybody who saw that believe heck no the Pharisees determined that day they had to kill Jesus to get rid of him Even somebody coming back from the dead is a good. How about when Jesus comes back from the dead? When Jesus is raised from the dead, all of a sudden, does everybody believe and become his follower? No. You've got Moses. You've got the prophets. We've got Jesus. We've got the New Testament. That's all that we need for God to do the work that only he can do in someone's head and heart to open up for them to see the truth and the reality of what the scripture says. That's all that we need. So let's get rid of the if onlys. And let's say, well, maybe it's time for us to start loving and serving and caring for people and continue what Jesus started. That's what made the difference in our lives. And that's what's going to make the difference in somebody else's life. Another lesson. Repentance, faith, and deeds are always connected and always required. Now, remember we've said before, repentance is turning from, faith is turning to. So we repent from our sins. We turn from that finding our life and our identity and stuff. We turn to Jesus, finding our identity in him. Do you notice what the rich guy says? He's Abraham. Send Lazarus, that no good beggar, send him to my hometown and have him tell my brothers so they can repent. Why does he say that? Because somehow he knew that repentance was the differentiator, and that implies pretty strongly he must have never repented, and he's not interested in repenting here. He's not turning from. He's certainly not turning to Jesus. There's no repentance. There's no faith. He's continuing the same way as he was. But there are other clues in the story that the gospel and repentance and faith and deeds are linked. Here's one. Do you know a Now, Lazarus is named here, right? And some people say, this is really not a parable because in parables, people never have names. This guy has a name. Do you know what the word Lazarus means? God helps. So is it really his name? Or is it a clue as to those that make it to Abraham's side? Now, here's a a predicament. Tell me if this isn't true. Affluence always leads to self-reliance. Isn't that right? I mean, if you have a whole bunch of stuff, you think you can make it on your own, right? You have a big enough retirement fund, heck, you can retire. You have good health, oh, you're okay, you can handle today. Marriage is going well, hey, we can face the future. When the bottom falls out, nothing like lack and need cause us to cry out for help. Lazarus means God Helps. So here's the rich guy, lots of affluence. He can handle whatever comes down the pike all by himself. He's even correcting Abraham's theology. And here's the poor guy, the one who God helps. And he's next to Abraham, in community with Abraham and his people forever and ever. You know, in the story, it says a little bit before this parable. Here's what it says. Be careful about money because money is a really good God pretender. You need to be careful because, I think this is verse 13, because you cannot serve both God and money. Then Jesus tells this parable. Do you think that was just a coincidence? I don't think so. What Jesus is saying is, let me tell you a story the repentance and faith aren't explicit in the story, but the deeds are front and center. If you turn from and you turn few, and you turn to, and you know that God has helped you, then you know that through you, God can help others. But if you're self-reliant and your extravagance and your affluence has brought about self-reliance, you don't need God's help or anybody else's help. I'm always reminded of that when you read the Old Testament. Here's what a uh, Here's what God says right after the Israelites, They wandered in the desert for 40 years, right? They crossed into the promised land. And here's what God tells Moses. Now tell the people, after they settle down and the crops come in and you have all the fruit you can ever want and all the vegetables are growing and life is good, you have all the meat, you sit down, you have protein, you have big fish, you have great desserts, life's wonderful. Be careful at that point that you don't forget God and the fact that you need his help to do anything that you're going to do. I don't know about you, but that's a, an important lesson I need to hear because, let's be honest, living in America, everybody in this room is pretty affluent compared to the world's standards. And the easiest thing for us is begin to become self-reliant rather than saying, you know what, just call me Lazarus. If God doesn't help me, then I'm in a world of trouble. There are clues in the story that show us it's repentance and faith that transact the deal. The deeds are the fruit that follow the faith and repentance. Father, we give you thanks for these (laughs) crazy stories, some of which we don't understand. They're always shocking. They're always not the way that we thought that they would go or should go. And yet, Lord, as we read ourselves into the story, we see a mirror. Lord, if we resemble the rich man today, help us to make changes that are required and if we're feeling a lot more like Lazarus today, help us to realize a banquet's coming and help us to live for that day faithfully today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.